Stanford University. So it's a pleasure to be here this evening, and I'd like to thank you all uh, for being here. Uh, what I hope to provide tonight for you is a highlight, really, uh, of uh, what uh, the latest uh, advances in robotic surgery uh, for urologic cancers uh, can offer us. I have one disclosure, and that's I have uh, served as a consultant for intuitive surgical in the past. A brief introduction about urologic oncology really focuses on the surgical treatment of cancers, specifically cancers of the prostate, kidney, uh, bladder, and testicle. I think what we need to realize with urologic oncologists is that we're physicians, we're surgeons, who work very closely as a uh, large team, uh, usually in combination with a medical oncologist who can provide chemotherapy in certain situations, or radiation oncologists, uh, really to try to find the most effective treatment for patients. <coughs> when you look at uh, last year, uh, 2009, at the number of uh, cancer cases that are in the United States, you can see that uh, both men and women are affected very frequently uh, by uh, these types of cancers, particularly for men. If you look at the bottom portion of this slide, the estimated number of deaths, at least for males, is highlighted among cancer types involving the prostate, uh, bladder, and kidney. What I wanted to do is really focus on the three major types of cancers that I treat as a urologist, and that is prostate, bladder and kidney cancer. Uh, when you review the statistics on prostate cancer, a large number of men are diagnosed with this disease. For example, last year nearly 200,000 men. Uh, almost 30,000 men died of prostate cancer in 2009, and that's the number two uh, cancer in terms of deaths behind lung cancer. Uh, the good news is that most of uh, prostate cancers today are detected when the disease is curable, and this is really different than what it was nearly 20 years ago and that's largely attributed to advances in terms of PSA screening and our increased understanding of digital rectal examination and annual follow-ups. Certain risk factors for prostate cancer are age, race, and a family history. When you're considering treatment options for localized disease, that is prostate cancer that has just been diagnosed, it can really be broken down into three types. That is with surgery, radiation therapy, or what is increasingly uh, being uh, understood, active surveillance. When we discuss surgery, there are many different types. And I think, you know, even though the topic of this uh, talk tonight is that of robotic surgery and urologic cancer, I really want to emphasize that uh, the robotic instrumentation that we use today is merely another uh, tool, another technique that we as surgeons can add to our armamentarium for treatment of disease. The long-proven and long-standing classic or open retropubic surgery is still probably the most commonly used uh, treatment uh, that has uh, evolved and been used over the past uh, number of years. We also have robotic surgery, pure laparoscopic approaches to treatment of prostate cancer, and the perineal or perineal approach, which has been uh, one of the original approaches uh, for treatment of this disease. 
Radiation therapy also represents another effective treatment option for men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, whether it's in the form of external beam radiation therapy or seed therapy. And as I briefly mentioned before, we're uh, beginning to understand, more importantly, the role of active surveillance or expectant management. This particular approach uh, is certainly appropriate for men with low volume uh, disease that is also uh, low grade in terms of its aggressiveness. And I think for many men, this may also represent uh, a very viable treatment option. <clears throat> I was having this discussion beforehand with several folks in terms of the evolution of surgical technique and robots in urology. When you look uh, in terms of historically how we've treated uh, diseases of the kidney or, uh, in this case, uh, prostate, it initially began with the classic open approaches for uh, surgical treatment. This followed with the evolution of technology into what we call laparoscopic approaches, minimally invasive approaches that offer the same type of uh, control rates for cancer, um, but with less morbidity for the patients. And then more recently, within the past really five to seven years, uh, the use of robotic-assisted technology, which really is a laparoscopic tool, uh, but that offers some advantages, advantages compared to uh, traditional laparoscopic approaches. I think when you're discussing prostate cancer, regardless of the approach, and this goes for radiation therapy, open surgery, laparoscopic or robotic surgery, that the three main goals of prostate cancer treatment in order are, should be cancer control, preservation of urinary control, and preservation of sexual function. I think the number two and three above are, are items that men who are trying to weigh the risk benefits of treatment um, uh, are, are considering. I wanted to show this slide to give kind of an overview of the anatomy. I think it's important to understand uh, what's involved when you're talking about surgical treatment of prostate cancer. And really, no discussion of anatomy would be complete without giving credit to one of my mentors, Dr. Patrick Walsh from Hopkins. Uh, nearly, actually over 20 years ago, he was the first to describe and really define our understanding of the surgical anatomy of this region, not only with respect to vascular issues and, and blood loss, but also uh, importance of uh, the neurovascular bundles or nerves that are responsible for sexual function in the male. So if you look at this diagram, you can see uh, the anatomy of the prostate outlined here with a potential prostate tumor, and really the close proximity of the vital structures which are responsible for those other uh, issues that we talked about with respect to a sexual function. So the nerves can come very close to the prostate. I think one of the challenges, whether it's with an open classic technique, a robotic technique, or laparoscopic technique, really one that applies to any surgical technique, is how we can best remove the cancer while preserving nerves uh, and also urinary control. This is an example of a whole mount section when a prostate specimen has been removed. And when you compare it to the previous cartoon, I've outlined the uh, prostate uh, organ itself. And you can see how uh, on the outside, uh, actually outlined in red, areas where the cancer can be contained. And on the outside here, on the, on the right side, you can see an area where an actual nerve bundle or extra tissue was removed along with this prostate specimen. So really the challenge is as a surgeon, again, regardless of the technique, is how you can best remove this particular uh, prostate gland uh, while sparing the nerves. And one would uh, uh, 
uh, can imagine the plane of dissection for surgery to come closer to the prostate in order to preserve the nerve. And it's really a fine balance. Every uh, patient uh, is treated as an individual with very specific and detailed characteristics of the cancer. Not all cancers are the same, and nerve preservation may not necessarily be uh, the same uh, for each patient. So in this case, for example, uh, due to a number of factors, whether it was an increased uh, uh, amount of cancer on one side, palp palpable disease, or other intraoperative findings, the nerve bundle or extra tissue was removed in order, again, to maximize the chances for cancer control. Now, talking about robotic surgery and robotic instrumentation, this is kind of the classic setup, uh, one of the original machines uh, where you can see on the side the, the surgeon, <coughs> excuse me, sits at the console, and then the patient is actually dissociated from the surgeon. And I think that is one of the interesting facets of this particular technology, that is the surgeon uh, is no longer standing right at the patient bedside. And so we rely on a very highly specialized team uh, consisting of a, uh, usually a, an MD uh, at the bedside to act as an assistant. They can change the instrumentation and is there uh, very close to the patient while the uh, surgeon operates the controls. This is an example again of the, uh, uh, of the uh, robotic instrumentation. Again, a laparoscopic interface. Uh, one of the advantages of the surgical system uh, that's used uh, here uh, at Stanford is that it is in three dimensions and high definition. So you can imagine uh, you know, looking into uh, this instrument that provides increased magnification and really seeing the clarity. So I think that is one of the advantages that the robotic systems have evolved over the past few years uh, compared to the traditional laparoscopic surgery. The other advantage of the robotic system, at least compared with traditional laparoscopic surgery, is this fine degree of, uh, of freedom and the dexterity by which you can use and, and manipulate the instruments. This really was, uh, is difficult to reproduce in the laparoscopic setting or pure laparoscopic setting with the older instrumentation. You can see here a very fine level of uh, control, at least with respect to uh, uh, manipulation of instruments. Now again, trying to understand very basic uh, anatomy, again, this is really a, a very oversimplified um, uh, diagram that shows this. The prostate sits between the bladder and the urethra. And again, if you recall your um, uh, previous slides with the, um, uh, with the cartoons, that there are a lot of vital structures uh, that surround the prostate. Uh, the prostate's removed, and then the bladder needs to be reconnected to the urethra in order to allow for continuity of the urinary tract. That's why a catheter is left in place oftentimes uh, for several days following the surgery in order to allow this uh, portion uh, to heal. With the laparoscopic or robotic approach, uh, there are very small, uh, what we call incisions, the largest of which actually occurs uh, typically above the uh, umbilicus in order to remove the prostate. Um, this is an interesting view of the internal anatomy of the male pelvis and actual robotic surgery. And what we lack here is the actual three-dimensional appreciation of the uh, technique. Uh, with the pelvis being here, the prostate actually sits behind this sheet of tissue. And once this tissue is removed, we're going to be able to see the prostate here in a second. Uh, and then trying to understand the steps of the surgery in order to gain vascular control and use of the uh, wristed instrumentation. So this is the outline of the prostate here, as you can see. And then really the advantage of the robotic uh, instrumentation over what we call pure laparoscopic approach is really the ability to manipulate or uh, do this type of suturing uh, or really fine uh, levels of control uh, that replicate the open technique. 
Here we're showing a, a combination of uh, dissection, both blunt and sharp dissection, where you can see a neurovascular bundle or neurovascular tissue on the right side. We're trying to pre preserve this where the prostate sits over here, uh, trying to remove that uh, gland uh, in its entirety. And so you can see here the, how uh, very uh, fine uh, dissection is undertaken in order to preserve this tissue in order to maximize return of sexual function, function following the surgery. Over here is the uh, portion of the operation which is almost complete. We're trying to finally remove this prostate uh, here and you can see a catheter and this is the portion of the catheter that will get uh, reconnected to the bladder uh, towards the end of the case uh, in order to establish continuity. This is kind of uh, what we're showing here is a final product prior to reconnection of the bladder to the urethra. The prostate normally would have sat here in this uh, area here and you have nice preservation of the neurovascular bundles on either side again to try to preserve quality of life following the surgery. Here's a, a diagram of uh, what uh, a surgery uh, can look like several weeks after the operation in terms of the healing process. Again, a lot of patients appreciate trying to avoid the larger incision in order to do this type of surgery. Typically here at Stanford, uh, we uh, have a one-day hospital stay. There's no need for a blood transfusion, and very rarely uh, do we have to do that. And really, we do not typically uh, ask for patients to donate their blood before surgery. The operative time is actually not any longer than an open surgery, uh, and then the catheter uh, remains for approximately one week following the surgery. It's very interesting because when you look at outcomes, and this is really uh, what has been a lot in the press lately, particularly this fall, uh, really there exists no prospective randomized controlled trials that have compared robotic surgery to the more classic uh, open uh, surgeries. Uh, some retrospective studies suggest that there are equivalent outcomes when you're talking about robotic techniques compared to open surgery, while others show better outcomes for robotic surgery. And finally, there are many studies also that show worse outcomes for robotic surgery. So I think it's a mixed bag depending on what you uh, read and what you look at. <clears throat> I think a very important study, and this is the study that got a lot of press around October of uh, 2009, as written by Jim Hu at, at Harvard, and really looked at the comparative effectiveness of a minimally invasive prostatectomy compared to open uh, prostatectomy. And the bottom line of this particular study, and again, it had several limitations, but I think we need to applaud this effort to try to look at it at least in some critical way. Again, assuming, remember, this was a Medicare database analysis retrospective design. But if you can see here, one of the conclusions, again, this was published in the JAMA, that men undergoing minimally invasive prostatectomy compared to open prostatectomy experienced shorter length of stay, fewer complications and strictures, similar operative use of additional cancer therapies, but experienced potentially more complications related to incontinence and erectile dysfunction. So it's very interesting because that went against a lot of what we've heard in the news or, or marketing from this particular technique. Now you look a few months later in a, another journal, again written by Jim Hugh here, it's very interesting when I came across, across this, is, and he wrote this, so it's you know why I perform robotic surgery despite more incontinence and erectile dysfunctions, and I agree with this, it's not about the robot. So I think when you look into the studies that have been published, particularly the JAMA article, one of the main points of that article and one of the uh, potential discussion points was the importance of the surgeon. Okay? It's that the robot, the robot is not performing the surgery. What really mattered most was surgical experience, expertise, okay, and, and understanding of the surgical anatomy. And that's what really, I think, mattered most. Because even in the JAMA article, 
uh, you could say in one sense they were comparing apples to oranges because there were varying levels of surgical expertise and experience with the systems uh, during that particular study. Shifting gears now to kidney cancer and the use of robotics in kidney cancer. Again, I've highlighted in the beginning of this talk that there are a significant number of uh, people who are diagnosed with kidney cancer in the United States. Nearly 13,000 people uh, were estimated to die of the disease uh, last year. The interesting thing is that I'm seeing more and more patients who are diagnosed with kidney cancers at an earlier stage. The classic situation is that a patient goes into the emergency room because they're not feeling too well, they may have some abdominal pain, they think it's a kidney stone, and they get a CAT scan, and lo and behold, they find a kidney tumor. And so this is what's referred to as an incidental finding. We know that certain risk factors, most notably smoking, uh, can play a role, and there are also uh, hereditary forms of kidney cancer. I think one of the things that we've realized, again, in terms of understanding our treatment options is that what we call nephron-sparing surgery is, is critically important. Most patients are candidates for this. That is, trying to preserve as much kidney as possible while taking out the tumor. If you turn back the clock five or ten years ago, uh, we would be removing kidney tumors, or I, I should say whole kidneys, for tumors as small as two centimeters in size. So if you were diagnosed with a very small tumor, uh, the, the most likely surgical option at that point in time was to remove the entire kidney. Uh, and again, I think in that situation, we're finding more and more about the importance of trying to preserve kidney function. People are living longer, and the importance of really trying to preserve um, that type of function is very uh, critically important. And that's really involved, uh, evolved to the use of what we call partial nephrectomy, or that is kidney sparing options. This can again be done in the same fashion as with prostate surgery, that is an open approach, a laparoscopic approach, or robotic assisted approach. There are also other options to treatment of kidney tumors. One that uses ablative therapies where you can either freeze the tumors or apply uh, other uh, um, uh, uh, options in terms of uh, heat sources such as radiofrequency. And the last one, uh, again very similar to prostate cancer, is that for certain patients uh, we can also continue to actively follow these lesions because many kidney tumors are small, slow growing or no growing, and so I think that also is a very viable option in certain situations. I show this slide, it's very busy, but this is a, a classic example of what was uh, just uh, released um, uh, within the past year to uh, some of uh, many urologists in the country that is uh, trying to uh, negotiate through this treatment algorithm for patients with small renal masses. And so this typically will apply to patients with kidney masses under seven centimeters in size. And so you can negotiate through this and see that partial nephrectomy, radical nephrectomy, ablative therapies and active surveillance can all be options, again, depending on the type of kidney tumor that you have and location of the tumor as well. I wanted to show you this as a, an example. <clears throat> this is a, a patient uh, who was actually diagnosed uh, with two kidney masses, and you can see that uh, they can vary in size, shape, and location. So I think this one CT scan uh, can uh, summarize some of the findings. So we'll turn our attention to this particular side, where you can see this tumor is, is quite large, greater than five centimeters. It's in the middle of the kidney, involving a lot of the kidney. And so this, uh, more likely than not, would actually not be a candidate uh, side for partial preservation and would have to be removed completely in many situations. So if you were to remove this kidney tumor, that would leave this patient with one kidney, and you would want to try to preserve this particular kidney as much as possible. 
when you look at this tumor, it's at the bottom of the kidney. It's halfway sticking out, halfway going in. So this is really more classically a tumor, uh, as I said, which if you turn back the clock five or 10 years ago, might have called for a complete removal of the kidney. But I think in 2010 is a perfect example of how we can perform a partial nephrectomy, whether it's with open surgery, pure laparoscopic surgery, or robotic surgery. So I wanted to show this video really as an example, and this goes for a few minutes, to show uh, you know, what's involved in terms of trying to operate uh, on this kidney. The kidneys sit, remember, behind uh, all of our abdominal uh, organs, uh, kind of in the back, and are uh, located behind uh, this fat pad, what we call gerota's fat uh, or gerota's fascia. On this side, this is the right side of the patient. You can see some bowel structures here. This would be the area of his, his liver. And so in order to access the kidney in the first place, we really need to dig and get behind these fatty structures. Once the bowel and colon are reflected, trying to dissect the area for the blood supply to the kidney, I think, is usually the next step in partial nephrectomy. You have to realize that these kidneys receive approximately 25% of uh, the blood supply each minute. I think this also calls the, the differences between what we call an open approach or something that can, can be done minimally, invasive, uh, minimally invasively. Because during a partial nephrectomy, uh, very frequently you have to stop the blood supply temporarily to the kidney. That's done by identifying things like the renal arteries. So this particular vessel here supplies the blood to that kidney. And you apply a clamp to this area in order to arrest that blood supply while you work on that kidney. I think one of the advantages of the open surgery compared to, to a robotic surgery is that you're actually able to cool down that kidney and establish what we call hypothermic conditions. That cools down the metabolic, uh, metabolic demand of that kidney while you're able to operate, um, which really is more of a challenge uh, in a minimally invasive setting. <clears throat> so once this blood supply is identified, uh, this uh, kidney can then uh, be um, uh, approached in terms of trying to identify uh, where the tumor is. Um, uh, again, uh, related to the blood supply, you're working around very delicate structures there. Uh, turning our attention back to the kidney, trying to find this tumor, uh, often, again, lies behind uh, a lot of other additional fat, but we'll see the tumor uh, appearing here in a second. It, it looks a lot easier to get out on the CAT scan than it is uh, oftentimes in the operating room. Um, but this particular mound uh, you see here, at least we're getting exposure here, is uh, where the tumor uh, would lie. One of the advantages of the robotic uh, system compared to what we call pure laparoscopic approaches is our ability uh, to sew. And so I think uh, when you look at this uh, with normal kidney here on the right side and the tumor that was poking out uh, outlined here uh, below the kidney, you can see how one uh, can begin uh, to cut and then literally after the uh, blood supply has been arrested, work in a relatively bloodless uh, field. You know, kidneys will still tend to ooze a little bit, but the amount of blood loss during this type of case, whether it's open, robotic, or laparoscopic, really should be very minimal. A lot of things, too, when you're doing this in three dimensions or magnified, uh, may look uh, worse than they actually uh, are in reality. So I think that's another level uh, of comfort in which we operate. And so you can see here the tumors being uh, cut out. Uh, the uh, uh, kidney then needs to be reconstructed, and we do that here by uh, suturing and applying uh, a lot of hemostatic agents in order to uh, prevent any uh, excessive bleeding uh, during the case. So I'm going to show this uh, in, the, in the last few seconds of this particular uh, video of the uh, tumor in its final stages of being removed, uh, and then 
uh, as I said, this particular portion of the kidney still needs to be reconstructed in order uh, to uh, prevent uh, any uh, further complications uh, following the surgery. And you can see our very dry uh, uh, tumor bed. Uh, we use uh, very specialized uh, coagulators as well as hemostatic agents uh, to uh, achieve a very good hemostasis following the surgery. So I think if you look at outcomes now uh, for minimally invasive kidney surgery compared to open surgery, uh, this is a very, uh, probably the largest study of its kind looking at laparoscopic and open partial nephrectomies of nearly 2,000 uh, patients. Uh, again, one of the conclusions, again, early experience with laparoscopic partial nephrectomy is promising. Uh, when you look at uh, for this particular study, when applied to tumors which were 7 centimeters or less, less, the partial nephrectomy done minimally invasively was associated with more complications afterwards compared to the open partial nephrectomy. However, equivalent functional and early cancer control outcomes were achieved. So I think, again, this highlights the need for a very specialized understanding of not only the surgical anatomy, but also the training and expertise that goes with using uh, these particular types of techniques uh, for uh, surgical treatment. Lastly, I wanted to turn our attention now to what's really on the horizon and the final challenge, I think, in, in urology with respect to treatment of bladder cancer. A uh, significant number of people, again, are diagnosed with bladder cancer in the United States each year, and nearly 15,000 people died of the disease in 2009. It's very interesting. If you look at the different cancer types and what goes into treatment costs and length of follow-up for patients, bladder cancer actually turns out to be one of the most expensive cancers per patient to treat in the United States. A lot of this has to do with a very close surveillance that is involved in following patients who are diagnosed with bladder cancer. Fortunately, most types of bladder cancer are not what we consider to be life-threatening. Um, but, uh, as I mentioned, this requires frequent follow-up with a urologist and involves often cystoscopy or looking into the bladder to make sure that a tumor recurrence has not uh, occurred. Hematuria is the most common presenting system, symptom uh, and really uh, requires investigation and uh, appropriate workup by a urologist. Hematuria can come in many forms. It can become in microscopic, that is something that is not seen by the patient and is detected typically by their internist or something that occurs in what we call gross hematuria uh, where blood is seen uh, during urination. I think one of the environmental risk factors uh, which is most commonly associated with bladder cancer is that of cigarette smoking. It's also one of the first <coughs> cancers that was identified to be associated with an occupational uh, exposure and that was very interesting uh, in England at the turn of the century. Um, a patient, a people working with uh, textile workers working with certain chemicals were found to have an increased uh, frequency of, um, of bladder cancers. Uh, diagnosis, the most common presenting symptom, uh, as I may have mentioned, is gross uh, painless hematuria. Uh, frequency, urgency, uh, and painful urination or dysuria are also frequently associated with certain types of bladder cancer, so hematuria by itself is not necessarily the only symptom that it can occur. Other presenting symptoms, uh, as I mentioned, are microscopic hematuria, irritative voiding symptoms, and again, like with kidney cancer, bladder cancers can be found as an incidental finding on CT scan or ultrasound for that matter. This is an example of cystoscopy. 
a patient will come in, typically in the urologist's office, will look in uh, with a cystoscope, and this is a more extreme situation, perhaps one of the worst cases of bladder cancer that I've seen, uh, where you can uh, see a, a bunch of what we call papillary tumors, it looks almost like broccoli or cauliflower within the bladder, uh, and this particular bladder is really involving uh, almost uh, every surface of the bladder, and this would represent something that would be uh, very aggressive uh, potentially, and something that would require uh, what's uh, called a radical cystectomy. Now, certainly you could try to resect all of these tumors, and there are a number of options that can exist for patients with less aggressive tumors or smaller burden, but this would be an example of an aggress aggressive type of bladder uh, cancer. As I mentioned, what we term radical cystectomy or complete removal of the bladder uh, is really uh, the standard of care for patients with more aggressive disease, particularly for uh, cancers that invade the muscle. The primary goal remains the same as with other cancers, and that is to achieve cure with the lowest impact on quality of life. Remember, radical cystectomy or surgical removal of the bladder provides the most definitive local control and also can provide us with accurate staging information by virtue of the lymph node dissection that is done with the surgery. When one removes the bladder, we need to find bladder replacement or options for bladder replacements. And the three most common uh, types are that of an ileal conduit, uh, where that uh, drains urine to an external appliance, an orthotopic neobladder, where we're able to reconstruct a bladder out of uh, the intestine, or a catheterizable pouch, where a patient can uh, simply catheterize uh, themselves in order to empty a bladder that, again, has been reconstructed uh, with a typically small intestine. There have been some reports, and again, I think this is still very early on, of being able to use uh, stem cells or being able to build uh, native bladders in the laboratory and then transplant that into patients. And I think we're still very early in trying to understand the true practical use of those reconstructions in surgery, but I'm hopeful that over the next five to ten years that that could become more of a reality uh, for us as far as a surgical option. When you're talking about the use of robots for this particular application, I think I firmly believe that the goal remains the same. Remember, the robot is just another tool. Our goals remain to achieve cure with the lowest impact on quality of life. Very similar to what we've experienced uh, and with minimally invasive techniques, robotic surgical approaches can also be associated with decreased blood loss, decreased transfusions, potentially shorter <coughs> hospital stays, but can also be associated with longer operative times, again, depending on who's performing the surgery and also the experience of the surgical uh, team. But it must be the same operation, I believe, as the open procedure. And really, that remains the question. I think the technique remains the same. And again, not to necessarily show another full-length video here, but if you were to try to take a critical analysis of this particular technique, it would follow many of the same steps as with the open procedure. Uh, in some cases, we might alter some of the steps involved in performing the surgery, but overall, the steps remain the same. That is, we want to achieve a wide margin of resection to make sure we remove all the cancer and perform a, a very complete and thorough lymph node dissection. I think one of the things that's on the horizon, we've talked about lack of clinical studies uh, trying to compare robotic surgery directly with open surgery for prostate and kidney uh, surgery. We're hopeful that working together uh, with some colleagues uh, throughout the country, because robotic cystectomy represents perhaps the newest application of uh, robotics in urology, that we'll be able to answer this sort of a qu uh, question in a prospective randomized trial over the next few years. 
So I think some of the closing thoughts and take-home messages, we've talked a lot about robotics uh, uh, in uh, surgery, is that the goals of contemporary surgical management remain the same. That is cancer control while decreasing morbidity for the patients. And I was talking with a few folks beforehand, I think more and more people are, are living uh, longer lives, healthier lives. We've understood the importance of exercise, the importance of diet in our lives in order to try to, trying to leave, lead more healthier um, uh, lives. And also people are working uh, and being involved uh, you know, for lengthier periods of times. When you're talking about surgical uh, recovery, uh, one of the advantages of minimally invasive techniques is that of a more quicker uh, recovery, perhaps allowing people to get back to work or back to their daily routine. Um, uh, more quickly. I do believe that uh, particularly f as it relates to bladder cancer treatment that there is a need for more randomized clinical trials to assess the true efficacy of this technology and that what matters most regardless of whether it's open laparoscopic or robotic surgery that surgical training, expertise, and experience make the most difference uh, with respect to choosing uh, the best uh, treatment uh, for a patient. So I'd like to thank you uh, for your time this evening. Uh, and again, it's been an absolute pleasure trying to give some highlights. I know it was a very brief overview of different uh, cancer types within urology, but at this point I'd be open to taking any questions from any uh, people in the audience. Thank you. Absolutely. So the question relates to, you know, you know, and it's one that's very common. You know, so which, essentially, which is the best technique or which is the best surgery? I think it's a very loaded question, but as I've mentioned, that what matters most really, I think, is the surgeon. It really doesn't matter on the technique. Certainly when you're looking at uh, advantages, for example, over the classic open technique, you're actually able to feel, you know, the prostate, the tumor there itself. I would argue that in this day and age where a lot of the cancers are caught early, most of the cancers actually aren't even palpated uh, by the, by, during digital rectal examination. Uh, you know, the advantages of the robot really lie in terms of recovery, uh, less blood loss, uh, you know, potentially shorter hospital stay, magnification, three dimensions. But first and foremost, really uh, what matters most is the comfort level of the surgeon and the experience and outcomes regardless of the technique. So if you can find someone who uh, you're comfortable with that does a, a fine open surgery, that uh, is uh, just as good if not better than someone who is not as experienced uh, but trying to do uh, a robotic surgery. Uh, again, regardless of the cancer type, whether that goes for prostate, uh, kidney, or bladder. Okay. So again, this question uh, from this gentleman relates to treatment choices and options. And again, it's a very individualized uh, uh, you know, uh, decision-making process. And uh, aside from what we call you know, your body habitus, whether someone is smaller or larger, that weighs in the factor. A lot of things would also weigh in you know, in terms of the type of prostate cancer you have, you know, other health problems that someone may have, and also overall treatment goals for you. Um, uh, again, you know, with radiation therapy, even though I'm not a radiation oncologist, there are certain options of SEED. Some patients may be candidates for SEED therapy, uh, while others may not. So I think it's a very individualized, uh, you know, option, which depends on a number of factors in order to make uh, your final decision. Uh, you know, surgery can be performed uh, on virtually anyone, whether they're smaller or larger. But again, going with surgery are certain risks, risks of, uh, you know, of bleeding, uh, risks of, uh, obviously, we talked about urinary incontinence or erectile dysfunction, but also risks of other uh, things not necessarily related to the surgery itself, such as you know, uh, development of blood clots in the legs or the lungs, uh, what we call pulmonary embolism. So all of those factors, I think, need to be weighed heavily into your final uh, treatment option and, and what 
uh, would give you the best cancer control with the least potential for complications or side effects. Right, and I, I would encourage that. So this gentleman brings up a great point with respect to second opinions or even third opinions. And I think those things are critically important in trying to get a good understanding, not only from you know, second opinions from surgeons, but also trying to meet with a radiation oncologist, uh, you know, in particular, uh, while, you know, while you're still trying to learn more about your disease process and what might best uh, suit your needs. Uh, yes, uh, there certainly is. There have been studies that have, uh, you know, looked into the, in, you know, infection rates. I'm not really aware of any particular study as it relates to wound infection rates for prostate cancer per se, but certainly I think, uh, you know, if you have, say, a six to eight centimeter incision as opposed to a, you know, two to three centimeter incision, um, that your, your chances of uh, wound infection uh, can certainly go up as a function of the increased length of the incision. Remember the other uh, thing that factors in if you're working uh, in an operative field, ideally everything is sterile, but we know that there are certainly low rates of, of wound infection, that the wound is going to be exposed during the entire length of the case uh, in an open situation, whereas in any typical laparoscopic situation, you're only going to be expanding that incision uh, when you're uh, ready to remove, uh, whether it's the prostate, uh, the kidney, uh, or the bladder. Now, that's a great question. Uh, and the question related to uh, the number of instruments and, and, and the view of three hands, very perceptive uh, uh, pickup on, on the video. Uh, so it's very interesting. If you look at the robotic system, it actually has uh, what they call a total of four arms um, uh, here. And if you look on, on the screen, for example, one arm is assigned to the camera control. That holds it. And then the uh, surgeon actually has control of all four of these. Uh, obviously not for simultaneously, we are able to flip a switch and, and maneuver any one of these uh, uh, arms um, uh, literally within a, a, a flick of a switch by our, our foot pedal. Um, yet, in addition to these, uh, I typically will have a surgical assistant being able to operate two additional instruments. So you'll be able to have the advantage of four instruments and then two additional instruments operated by the, uh, the bedside uh, surgeon, usually uh, in the form of a suction control uh, or, or clips or, or other device. I think it compares very favorably to the open surgery. Uh, you know, you're still working, you're typically across from uh, someone uh, in, in the field uh, where you're able to use, you know, my two hands in addition to their two hands uh, and have direct access. Uh, you know, I think nothing will replace, at least uh, in our current technology, the advantage of what we call tactile feedback in certain situations where you have that uh, advantage uh, in an open surgery. But I'll tell you, at least with laparoscopic uh, robotic surgery, uh, that I've been able to gain a, a better appreciation in some sense of the surgical anatomy because of the angles of view that I'm able to get um, uh, with, the, uh, with the camera uh, in combination with the magnification uh, and three-dimensional uh, visualization. So I think it's a, it's a very dynamic uh, operating environment that one is uh, uh, involved with and really immersed in when, when you're doing robotic surgery. Yeah, so it, it varies. And again, this was quoted from a, a, a study back in 2007. So I think, again, a lot will depend on the procedure that you're talking about, uh, the experience of the surgeon. Longer operative times can vary anywhere from, uh, you know, one hour to two hours to, to longer. Again, again, that points to the uh, critical importance of surgical experience and expertise. Um, you know, I would argue that my uh, times for robotic prostate surgery kidney surgery or bladder surgery are actually no longer uh, than open surgery and in some cases 
are shorter than, uh, than open surgery. So I think you, know, you usually will run into longer operative times uh, as someone is just starting out or earlier in their experience compared to a more mature uh, experience. Yeah, okay, so the question uh, uh, involves dexterity difference, and this is actually uh, very interesting. Uh, again, even though I uh, would claim to have no uh, hand tremor, uh, remember the robotic surgical instrumentation was initially developed for military application and uh, can actually have what we call scaling uh, on it. Uh, there are different uh, modes on the robot when it, which can actually uh, account and uh, really uh, diminish any sort of hand tremor uh, that you have. The, I, I think the one current limitation uh, with uh, robotic surgical uh, dexterity really relates to the pincher-like uh, hand uh, pieces that you have. So while you actually have a, a very uh, great degree of freedom and wristed uh, movement, you're really operating almost essentially with a thumb and your first finger to do a lot of the surgery. Um, but I think uh, in many uh, cases, uh, at least uh, how we've evolved uh, with our experience with the robotic surgery, that is more than adequate to perform uh, even the most complex cases. Um, but as far as dexterity is concerned, you could actually say that the robot can almost compensate, compensate in some sense for, for any type of tremor that, that a surgeon might have. I don't think so. The question relates, was the robot really developed to account for human fatigue uh, that is um, you know, encountered during surgery? And I, I really don't believe that was the case. I think, uh, again, initially, one of the uh, first uses of uh, the, the robot was for cardiac surgery. And I think it was really trying to uh, find an application uh, for uh, you know, really more refined movements in a small space. Again, I think that's one of the advantages you're able to actually operate in much more confined spaces uh, with this type of technology uh, than I could, for example, uh, with my own hands. And again, I don't have the largest hands in the world, but um, there have been certainly more confined spaces where you could actually uh, get uh, at with robotic instrumentation or laparoscopic instrumentation compared to the tra traditional views that you would see uh, in the uh, classic operating, uh, operating room. After, actually, it's only, and even during prostate surgery, it's very, you know, uh, some of the suturing that's required in prostate surgery, uh, we're able to achieve a watertight connection between the bladder and urethra. Uh, again, I think that that is actually one of the advantages of the robotic instrumentation over the pure laparoscopic instrumentation uh, that, uh, you know, has really been uh, experienced, uh, I think. Uh, particularly as it relates to that wristed instrumentation. Remember that when I refer to pure laparoscopic instrumentation, it's really not working with instruments that can offer that degree of freedom uh, and movement and um, trying to manipulate that suture. So I think there is a higher uh, demand of skill actually required to suture in a pure laparoscopic environment, at least with the old instrumentation. Right, so that's a, that's a great question. So it relates to the complication rates associated specifically with robotic surgery. Uh, again, uh, one of the things I tell my patients is that this is a gradual process, that from the time of surgery, um, it can take several weeks, several months, up to a year, or even longer in terms of recovery of not only urinary control, but sexual function. Remember, the robotic surgery is no magic tool. That is, there have certainly been claims made, I, I believe, at least directly more uh, so with marketing purposes, of superior outcomes. And you know, there are studies that have shown that. But as I mentioned, there are studies that have shown equivalent outcomes or even worse outcomes, as, as we've highlighted in the fall. So I think realistic expectations uh, call for a, a really a, a, an analysis of you know, that particular surgeon's experience 
uh, with robotic surgery. We know that surgeons with more experience will have better outcomes than with surgeons who are, are doing uh, fewer cases or who are earlier in their learning curve. And that not only goes for robotic surgery, but with open surgery. I think one of the things that you know, we uh, can't forget is that there have been large studies that have shown uh, not only with robotic surgery, but open surgery, that surgical experience uh, matters. So if you look at some of the, the, the best studies have been done, or at least the most widely published studies, and, and really ones with the most experience have actually come from uh, places like Hopkins or Memorial Sloan Kettering, where they've probably done the most surgical experience. And I think that in experienced hands, you can experience, uh, you can ex excuse me, expect outcomes for urinary control that are greater than 90% or even higher, depending on the surgeon, um, as well as sexual function. Now again, a lot will depend, that's a loaded question and loaded answers here because a lot will depend on patients' performance status prior to the surgery. So that we know that the best outcomes not only for urinary control and sexual function occur in younger men who have excellent sexual function beforehand uh, and uh, who have both nerves preserved. Okay, and a lot of the factors that go into surgical candidate selection and nerve preservation will be affected by biopsy results, okay, PSA level, and what can also be felt on the exam. But I think you can expect excellent results. Again, I don't think that these results necessarily will come right away or immediately after the surgery, but I think it is a realistic expectation that if you are in excellent health, that you're younger, that your chances of recovering urinary control and sexual function following this type of surgery in experienced hands should also be excellent. That's a great question. You know, as far as expenses are concerned, I think there, again, there have certainly been cost analysis studies to look at that um, over, uh, compared to open uh, surgery, and it's certainly no doubt more expensive. I can't quote you an exact dollar figure, but if you look at the initial cost of, uh, you know, capital expenditures for the machine, and I think this becomes more relevant uh, in this day and age with uh, healthcare and, and influences and how that can impact the whole global system, you know, one of the uh, instruments actually costs about one and a half million dollars uh, for the, uh, you know, hospital to purchase, and then you're accounting uh, other disposable instrumentation. So there's no doubt in my mind that the actual, to actually perform the, uh, you know, the open surgery would certainly cost uh, potentially less uh, than uh, a robotic surgery on a case-by-case -case basis. But then, if you were to try to look at uh, cost analyses and models that look at uh, things like patient recovery, perhaps hospital stay, that there have been reports that have shown that you know, the, the costs uh, can certainly balance out, but that would only be after uh, a, an immense number of cases that are, are performed. But I think intuitively you can think of uh, that, you know, like with anything that uses you know, the latest technology, there might be a, a higher cost associated with that. Yeah. Well, so it has been more commonly used. Really, the uh, really big increase in utilization of the robotics occurred probably around uh, you know, the early 2000s, really more recently, perhaps 2003, and has become uh, increasingly popular now in 2010. And, and that really is attributed to its use for prostate surgery. It's still not uh, very commonly used for kidney surgery or bladder surgery uh, in the country, and that may be related to, again, surgical experience or comfort uh, levels with um, you know, the types of surgery that are being performed in complexity of cases. 
So the question relates to communication. Just like with anything uh, in the operating room, uh, communication is key and working uh, with a robotics team or, or an operative team that is familiar not only with the tools that are being used but also the flow of the operation I think is critical uh, to successful outcomes. Um, you know, they're always within earshot or you know, not more than 10 or 15 feet away. Uh, you know, there are microphones that are built in so everyone can hear everything that's being said. Uh, and then you, you work on visual uh, cues and expectations. As I tell my patients, I work with a very experienced team. Uh, that's what we have here at Stanford, as with any place that uh, I think does a, a lot of robotic surgical uh, procedures that you rely on the expertise of the actual people who are doing the procedure rather than on the technology itself. Um, typically, it's with a very experienced physician assistant or a, a qualified a medical doctor, or a surgeon at the bedside. Uh, so I think it's someone who uh, is uh, very capable of handling any type of situation as a surgical assistant um, uh, for, for any type of procedure. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's going to rely on a number of factors, probably most importantly on the surgeon uh, you know, uh, himself, uh, the, you know, the kind of the team leader, as well as the environment, uh, the operating environment that you're at uh, or, or you know, exist in. Um, you know, in university settings, we have the advantage of working with many different types of healthcare professionals, ranging from uh, nurse practitioners, to physicians, physician assistants to MDs. Uh, Community-based setting may rely on a team of two MDs or an MD and a physician assistant. But I think uh, regardless of which uh, type of health practitioner uh, performs the role of an assistant, what's more important is their understanding of uh, the, uh, the flow of the operation as well as uh, you know, what really is required because they are an assistant role rather than the surgeon role. And really the assistant role really is defined by surgical exposure, um, providing adequate uh, suctioning or clearing of the surgical field or application of clips. And really that's uh, going to be probably what's uh, going to be expected of a, a surgical assistant rather than the surgeon who's operating and trying to do things like nerve preservation or, um, uh, or uh, you know, removing uh, the cancer. Right. Or I liken it oftentimes to when you're flying in a plane. There's a pilot and a co-pilot. And really, you can't do the surgery alone. It requires uh, a number of uh, team members, all of whom play very important and designated roles uh, for the operation. Yeah. So that's a very inter interesting question, and again, a very good one that relates to surgical experience and outcomes. There have been, again, a number of studies that have looked at what we call the learning curve, specifically for robotic prostate surgery. And it varies. It can, vary, it can be as little as anywhere from 20 to 30 cases, and we, or to 100 or more. We know that uh, the uh, learning curve, specifically for laparoscopic prostatectomy, can uh, be uh, over 100 cases. So, uh, you know, I, I think a lot will uh, have to do with the surgical training of the individual who's performing the operation. In this day and age, where uh, depending on the residency program that you're involved with, MDs can get very early exposure to laparoscopic technology or robotic technology that can span a period of five to six years. So you compare that with people who may not have received that experience to those who do a more intensive fellowship and try to get exposure within a one to two year period. So I think the learning curve can range, again, roughly anywhere from, say, 30 cases to 100 cases or more. But I think certainly someone who's done several hundred of these types of operations would have proven proficiency uh, in, in performing the robotic procedure. The only caveat to that is, again, a lot of the procedure 
the way someone does an operation can be influenced by how they were trained. So you can compare someone, say, who's done 200 robotic surgeries but has had different training than someone who has done another 200, and they may do uh, the robotic prostate surgery in slightly uh, different ways uh, and have different nuances depending on, on where they trained and who their mentors uh, were in, in trying to understand that surgical anatomy. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And I think Nora uh, will wrap up. Okay, thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.